is, and welcome back. I love to get the view from the Academy, the smart view from the Academy with Pete Peterson on Fridays. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and uh, you can follow him uh, on Twitter at Pete, the number four, C-A, at Pete, four, C-A, Pete Peterson, my favorite dean. How are you, sir? Great, Jeff. Always good to be with you, and uh, especially on Friday afternoon. You betcha. It's good to be with you too, sir. I want to do. I want to throw three things your way, and uh, the third one could be a little fun. But the first two, I was, I was, you know, I, I, I follow you on Twitter, and two of the things you've been uh, tweeting a bit about lately. Um, if you wanted to weigh in on them, one was your conference on uh, communitarianism, which I thought looked yep. really interesting. If you want to say something about that. More than welcome to him. The other was a study out of the Templeton Foundation that one-third of students say they muzzle their views in class for fear of social media backlash. Uh, love to have you on either of those things, but I'll tell you what the third one is if you want to, uh, if you want to just salivate, because I think it would be a lot of fun. So my general, yeah. my, my general manager here sent to several of our hosts a questionnaire asking them what their five what their five most important conservative books were to them. In other words, what books most shaped or helped shape their worldview? And he asked um, Larry Elder, Mike Gallagher, uh, me, Dennis Prager, Sebastian Gorka. You know all of us. And uh, I thought it would be fun to run those five from each of them by you and have you say, sight unseen, something about at least one of those books. Wouldn't that be fun? All right, we'll do that in a minute. But tell, tell us about what's going on at Pepperdine Communitarianism. And the fact that students, separate issue, students uh, are muzzling their views these days like never before. Yeah, well, that first on the communitarian series of webinars we've been hosting under the title Quest for Community is based on uh, one of the books I hope somebody raised in the the top five conservative books, which is uh, Nisbet's Quest for Community. And suffice it to say, these uh, webinars we've been hosting over the last nine months have been exploring different aspects of what could be seen as a more uh, locally driven conservative politics and policy. Uh, we had at one time in the 90s and early 2000s uh, something akin to a, a bipartisan consensus on this more communitarian view of, of politics uh, that came out with organizations like the American Enterprise Institute, um, great book that they had, uh, the Civil Society Reader, another uh, important book that gathered together a lot of thinkers uh, to empower people, was uh, by Peter Berger and uh, Richard John Newhouse. And so what we've been exploring at the policy school is in this, time, and we've talked about this before, Seth, when we're seeing these increasing levels of loneliness and disconnection, these deaths of despair, and so on, is there a conservative response to it? And increasingly, what we're going back to is this very classical understanding of conservatism, which understands the importance of institutions, starting uh, with uh, families, of course, but also civil society, uh, churches, religious organizations, uh, but also our neighborhood, just our local affiliations where we live, as providing these opportunities for uh, connection and civic engagement. 
And so the event that we hosted last week was with uh, somebody on the left uh, named Derek Liu, who was actually working on some of these issues in the in the Clinton White House going back into the 90s. And so we had uh, we had a friendly debate about uh, what a what a more left leaning communitarian approach looks like versus my perspective, which is more this classical uh, conservatism. But I I do believe we're at a moment, and this is something you cover so well in your show, where the conservative movement more broadly is trying to seek out what the next steps are going to be, understanding uh, where we are in the country post-Trump. Um, and so our argument is that this communitarian uh, focus is one that uh, is not only um, can be appealing, but is also timely. Nice, nice. I remember uh, first encountering articles, uh, learned uh, articles about communitarianism through the works of someone whose name I don't see anymore, but he was everywhere for a while, a guy named Amitai Etzioni. Remember that? Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, so Etzioni at George Washington University had this Center on Communitarianism, wrote a lot of books, uh, very prolific writer and speaker. He could be seen more in the left-leaning communitarianism in that he saw government as being a facilitator of uh, more locally driven policy and civic engagement. You know, where I'm coming from would be the thinkers would be the Nisbet, Dick Cornell, um, certainly uh, Russell Kirk and others that uh, have taken, you know, a Rod Dreyer would would probably be a more recent thinker and writer on these things, but that, you know, that great Prager phrase that the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen, and the inverse is also true. And so finding these opportunities to connect one with another, especially at the local level, the importance of institutions, once again, in uh, providing a, a mediating space, to borrow the term, between government and the citizen is is really a set of arguments we think conservatism should be making again. Well, especially ripe, say that that last part again is important because especially ripe, as I say it, is uh, if, uh, how did you put it, Pete, mediating institutions between government and citizen, is that your phrase? Is that how you used it? Yeah, that's right. Mediating institutions between government and citizen, uh, kind of of important when you think about the role a lot of government has taken upon itself in... um, in the last year, certainly in the name of COVID, but in other ways that maybe Frederick Hayek warned us about, as, as well as probably other communitarians, where the government wants to sap that very thing. The government wants to, shall we say, uh, run the field, uh, run the yeah, boards, that's right. and, own, occupy and, all know, the space, play all the rules. Right. And, I mean, the economists have given us this great phrase, crowding out, which is the, the actual study of the impact of government in when it takes a stronger role on providing social services, they crowd out the civil society and citizen-led institutions that were there previously. And so this isn't just about theory and political philosophy. This, this is real proven social science. That uh, that Prager phrase is true. Right. No, it is proven. And we've known it uh, from the founders. Uh, Certainly Madison wrote about this in the Federalist uh, Papers, Auxiliary Institutions. Tocqueville, 
of course, yeah. gave us a lot on this. And what's interesting when I think about Tocqueville in this respect, Pete, is he also talked about the importance of religious institutions in America and how, you know, perhaps that religion is our first uh, our, our first institution, really, in America. And when yeah. you think about that and the communitarian notions of of civilizing or mediating institutions between state and individual, again, to what I said, that this country went through an experience for the better parts of a year in large parts of the country, uh, gatherings at religious uh, uh, houses of worship uh, were banned just at the time when people also in social science were warning about loneliness. Very, very, very disturbing set of things took place, each colliding into the other from what we knew before, isn't it? It is, Jeff, and I think you you directly and accurately frame the operative question I believe that's facing America right now is that as we see light at the end of this tunnel, as we see the vaccines being distributed, do we see that that awareness, as you just pointed out, that we miss those things, mm-hmm. that we miss worshiping together, that we miss working together on various, uh, you know, public challenges, that we miss working together in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we realize those things and then uh, respond in such a way that that shows that we really do need one another, that we need to return even in maybe greater numbers to engage in our communities and understand the importance of our workplaces as providing uh, civic relationships, much less economic ones, or do we take what we've, we believe we've learned and say, you know, we can continue to pull back from church, we can continue to pull back from these uh, important civic institutions that have demanded real people to get involved. Nicely put. We'll talk more with Pete Peterson on the other side of this break. I want to talk conservatism and books with him, conservative books that should form the canon. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Pete Peterson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's a delight to have Pete Peterson with us as we do on most Fridays, giving us a, a view from the Academy, uh, but uh, the kind of view from the Academy as it used to be. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, doing great work there in Southern California. And you can follow him, uh, of course, on Twitter at Pete4CA, the number four, at Pete number four. C-A-P. I thought this would be a fun exercise. We do things like this from time to time. My general manager asked several of our hosts here to name five books that they would consider part of the canon that informed their conservatism. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would read them to you, and you can comment on any one or any numbers of them that you would like. Shall we start with Larry Elder's five favorite books? Sounds great. And 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 see if you feel free to comment on and if any of them surprise you, or if you would have guessed there would have been something not in that list. But Larry Elder, uh, I know you'll know all of these: "The Road to Serfdom" by Hayek, "Free to Choose" by Milton and Rose Friedman, "Race and Culture" by Thomas Sowell, 
Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olasky, and Who Really Cares by Arthur Brooks. You know all those books pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Olasky's yeah. a fun name. I haven't seen that in a while. You know, that, I have to say, was formative in my own experience. Uh-huh. Um, so I I haven't thought about Olasky's book in a long time, but that was one of the first book books I read in my, say, mid-20s or so, and I realized, wow, there's a lot more to this thinking that government just simply, you can say that it cares for people more than anything else. Mm-hmm. His dissection of this crowding out problem is exactly what he goes into there. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Arthur Brooks book, what makes Larry such a great host, as you know, is that he knows the data. And so yep. in each of those books, there's a lot of data yes. being covered there. And That's what it. Brooks gets into is this very inconvenient truth but not only conservatives, but especially conservatives uh, in in some faith tradition, give more time and money, and not just to religious causes, but even to general civil society, than those that say they care on the left. And so there's a lot of rich data that uh, Brooks goes into as well in that book. So I would just pull both of those. The others are certainly classics, but I do think more conservatives should know the rich data that is in both the, the Brooks book and Alaski. It's a great it's a great uh, series of points you're making, and I guess between the two of us, it, it's probably fair to say too. From what um, I, I don't know your relationship with Larry, I know you know him, um, but yeah. from our mutual relationships with Larry, that this this is a collection or selection that a doesn't surprise. And B, it just shows you this is Larry. These five books are Larry. And there's a nice progression to them. The Road to Serfdom, Free to Choose, Race and Culture, The Tragedy of American Compassion, Who Really Cares? I mean, that is Larry. Those five books are him, aren't they? They really are. And I do know Larry a bit. We've had lunch before. Yeah. You know, the podcast and studios not too far from the Pepperdine campus. And uh, But you're so right. They really do uh, define him and, and very logical picks. Yeah. Mike Gallagher, uh, these books you will know as well, I think. Mike Gallagher's Five, The Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater, oh. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, The Federalist Papers, Things That Matter by Charles Krauthammer, and The Bible. Those books are Mike too. I, I, I'm guessing just because of, of uh, location, I may know Mike a little more than you, but maybe not. But those are those books. That's Mike. <laughs> that that's yeah. Mike too. Yeah, I know you're right, and and certainly uh, really covering the waterfront there from Iron uh, Rand uh, to the Bible. Yeah, and, you get paleoconservatism, you know, neoconservatism. You get whatever Anne Rand stood for. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> No, that's right, and I don't know Mike that well, but I certainly have listened to yeah. the show and yeah. know him as a host, and, and those certainly seem like like logical picks there, too. The Bible's an interesting selection for a book um, in one or two respects, because one might say it's a book like no other book. There's no other book like it. It's, it's, yeah. it's uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, sweet generous? It's, it's in a class of its yeah. own. And yeah. um, and and I guess the question I would ask Mike if I had him on, maybe I'll ask him on, what is it from the Bible he divines? That's the wrong word. What is it from the Bible? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, too clever by half. What is it from the Bible he takes? 
to inform yep. his conservatism. I'll tell you what it is for me. I'd love to know what it is for you, if it's true that it does inform your conservatism. For me, it's the nature of man and the distinction yes. that men are not gods nor beasts. Yeah. No, I think that's that's very well put, Seth, and I, w- I would take it the same way. What, what is what is our role in society um, and in culture, and what are our duties and responsibilities? But also, there there needs to be a a person. We need to understand ourselves rightly, which puts us exactly as you put us between lower than angels, but <laughs> greater than animals. Yeah, a little lower and than the that, angels, right? Yeah. There's, it gets to what Tocqueville, in many ways, saw as the important quality of particularly the, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition in forming democratic citizens, in that it always, in one of his great phrases, it always put the end goals of man beyond their lifetime. Nicely put. And, yeah. and in so doing, it creates a certain amount of humility, right? Yep. It, it was uh, Buckley who said that you know one of the real problems with with liberalism uh, on the left was this tendency towards immunitizing the eschaton, right, right, uh, which was always about we need to th- we need to create heaven on earth, and of course a right understanding of the Judeo-Christian religion and the other major religions is that this is not all there is, and heaven will never be. Um, this side of an actual heaven, and so that that really should temper uh, and and give us humility as we interact on what are really major public challenges that we all have. I only have the most uh, feeble short term memories, Pete. So I'm going to interrupt us for a minute and just make some sausage on air with my producer, Bill. Bill, I want to cut an ad for this show where I'm saying we will not immanitize the eschaton here. All right, will you remind me that will be one of our new promos? No immanitizing the eschaton from 3 to 6 on 960 AM, okay? Work that up for me. Sorry, Pete, I hated to interrupt you. Quite all right. No, I <laughs> We're going to head to a break, so I'll do fast. I'll give you my five, and you can come back on them, Okay. A New Birth of Freedom by Harry V. Jaffa, The Dream and the Nightmare by Myron Magnet, Witness by Whitaker Chambers, Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater, the only book that was listed twice, by the way, Up from Liberalism by William Buckley. I'll let you think of those, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll converse on the other side of this break, and then I'll give you Pragers. You'll love Pragers. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and we are giving you the conservative canon here while not immanitizing the eschaton. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's a delight to have with us Pete Peterson. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can follow him on Twitter at Pete4CA, and four is the number four, at Pete, the number four CA. We're talking books that um, uh, – conservative books, conservative tomes that have uh, shaped our conservative viewpoints, uh, and we've asked several of our Co-guests, uh, several of our radio hosts to give us their list, and we're running them by Pete for his comments on them. So, Pete, mine was A New Birth of Freedom by Harry Jaffa, The Dream and the Nightmare by Myron Magnet, uh, 
Witness by Whitaker Chambers, Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater, and Up from Liberalism by William F. Buckley. Any thoughts yeah. on any of those? That did any of those uh, strike you when you were when you were becoming a conservative? Well, certainly uh, a new birth of freedom. Uh, we haven't of the books you've listed thus far. There hasn't been a focus on the Constitution, right? Um, and so the importance of the Constitution as a conserving document, and certainly as it was bent and twisted through the Civil War and Jaffa taking us through our relationship as citizens to one another because of the Constitution. Very important book in uh, understanding conservative thought. And so that's a, that's a great pick. Magnet's book is, is good and also different from the others that uh, you've listed thus far because it focuses on the 60s. Right. And if there is a, a period of time that really wrought havoc on, on conservative thinking and conservative mores, it was the 60s, and Magnet pulling that apart to show that all the glitters was not gold back then. In fact, there were serious societal and personal prices to be paid by uh, certain lifestyles that were encouraged uh, during that period is is very important to understand that ideas have consequences, Mm -hmm. and, and his ability to apply that to actual stories is, is uh, very important as well. In, so in a way, you could have subtitled that book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, couldn't you, in a way? Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think there is, is something to that. Um, there's also there's a, there's a bit of a tragedy of, of liberalism yes. in that yes. as well, yes. right? Yes. This, this tension just to bounce back to Jaffa that we actually do have responsibility to one another. That phrase that he uses that the Constitution is not a, a free love document, mm-hmm. right? It is a set of responsibilities. It is a compact that we enter into as citizens. Um, you know, that you, you can really read those two books together, <laughs> and it very much shows that if we if we don't hold the Constitution and the lives of our fellow citizens in that type of regard, we can end up with that nightmare scenario that, that Magnet so well lays out. I liked uh, uh, Witness because I thought it was important we yeah. understood what the long twilight struggle was about. I threw in Conscience of a Conservative by Goldwater, perhaps for reasons different from others, but Pete, um, if you go back and read that book, and, and you well know it, um, yep. there's this notion about Barry Goldwater as a libertarian. This is not a libertarian book. This is a book right. whose opening pages is all about natural law and how it is the liberal who sees man as a material being. It, being, it is the conservative who sees man as someone with more than just a stomach, in Barry Goldwater's words. Uh, liberalism well, is about appetite. Well, I'm sure your appetite. listeners know in that area yeah. uh, that that Goldwater lived the life of of a, uh, if you will, a conscientious yeah. conservative. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that was not just these were not just arguments he was making in the public square. He was living his life out in such a way that he was deeply believed in volunteerism and yep. civil society yep. and engaging in supporting the lives of others. He understood the line that gets crossed when government uh, seeks to step in and in its own way 
uh, crowd out the behavior of the Barry Goldwaters of this war- world. And I would also say it's just important that you raise witness. Um, because that is that is important reading for now. Yep, uh, as we might be looking at another existential opponent on the world stage. Agreed. Nice. Let me tell you what Dennis's are as we head into break, and you can comment on them on the other side if you have time. Do you have time? Yeah, I do. His five books: Modern Times by Paul Johnson, Man's cool. Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, Vision of the Anointed by Tom Sowell, The Israel Test by George Gilder. Kind of interesting. And this is interesting, too. Mao, The Unknown Story. I don't know that book. Um, I don't either. Yeah, <laughs> but we need Love to know more about Mao. Yeah, we'll talk more about uh, Frankel and Johnson and Sowell and Gilder when we come right back with Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. With us, um, Pete Peterson, good friend. He is the Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Uh, they teach no rot there. What I mean by that is there was a philosopher at Oxford uh, around uh, World War I who opened every class, uh, Professor Smith, saying uh, the chief purpose of education, Pete, is to know when a man is talking rot. There's a lot of rot in our education system, uh, higher and um, elementary and secondary, but they won't find it at your school, will they? No, we certainly, we certainly have been uh, fighting that good fight for almost 25 years now. But when you start with founders like James Q. Wilson and Michael Novak and Jack Kemp, you know the, the foundation was set right. Boy, that's uh, that's the yeah, that's 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 a pretty solid foundation. Dennis Prager's five favorite books he told us were Modern Times by Paul Johnson, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Vision of the Anointed by Thomas Sowell, The Israel Test by George Gilder, and Mao, The Unknown Story. Any thoughts on Frankel, Sowell, Gilder, or Johnson, Pete? Well, certainly Frankel is the first psychiatrist, I think, of the books that have been cited thus far. Yes. And so understanding that conservatism Ah, wait, hold it. No, he's not. Guess what? Charles Krauthammer was a psychiatrist. Ah, very good. Very <laughs> How do you like very that? Well so, what played. does it say about the conservative movement that its two psychiatrist books make a privileged <laughs> list of forty? You know, right? Well, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your thought. Not at all. It's very well played. I, you know, I think that you know conservatives are sometimes indicted for being just fact based and thinking about economics. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Those kinds of quantitative things, yeah. but, you know, it's it's good to understand the humane and human part of this. And, of course, that really is that root where conservatism is arguing, is that we are dealing from a particular human nature. And uh, certainly Frankel explores that in the search for meaning and, and how we do seek. I mean, many of those principles you can see at the grounding of this communitarian approach to conservatism that I mentioned before, but it is very much about the importance of institutions and how we seek meaning uh, in engaging through these institutions and how we find our identity, not just out of ourselves, but really in participation in the lives of our community. One of the quotes out of that book from Frankel that Dennis Prager makes a uh, makes a lot of, and I think it's an important one. I wonder what your sense of it is. There are two races of men in this world, but only these two. 
the race of the decent man and the race of the indecent man. Both are found everywhere. They penetrate into all groups of society. No group consists entirely of decent or indecent people. What think you of that notion, Pete, that there are only two races of men in the world, the decent and the indecent? Well, that is certainly um, a bifurcation. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and it certainly is not without uh, biblical resonance. Correct. Right? I mean, there, right. there certainly are those. It becomes how we define decent but I think what is true, and this certainly does connect to a broader conservative philosophy, is that um, we are not we are not dealing with mankind that is always prone to goodness, and in that we we must be must be aware uh, uh, in a, in the structuring of our societies. I'm trying to think now of this great Madison quote that he had in one of the Federalist Papers, in which he described that the, the government is is the greatest realization of an understanding of human nature. Right, right, and, right. You know, we need to understand that uh, these structures... No, here's the quote. Why has government been formed at all? Because the passions of men mm-hmm. will not conform to the dictates of reason mm-hmm. without restraint. With it, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And that very much is what Frank was, is saying there as well, but also the importance of there being decent men and women and uh, and what and, that and decency and restraint is based in because yes. frankel comes from a society and a moment in history where there was an awfully strong government after all it called itself national socialist um and it certainly did engage in the restraint of uh, man but it engaged in the resta- restraint of man by engaging in the restraint of natural law and perhaps upending, Pete, as I'm talking and thinking at the same time, perhaps upending that whole notion that we started this conversation with, that there is a distinction between God and man and man and beast. I think the Nazi regime, if it stood for anything that Frankel witnessed, it stood for the notion that there are certain classes of people that can be treated as animals or vermin or cattle. Um, and then you can do with them what you do to cattle or vermin, because while a strong government, nonetheless, it was a strong government based wholly on an absence of natural law grounding. Absolutely right. And the inverse was also true yep. there, right? Yep. When you had this this uh, Nietzschean ubermensch. Right, men who could uh, be gods, right? Men could also yep. be gods yep. as well, yep. right? And so there wasn't really to be any accountability to a higher authority that that is to be realized uh, on Earth, and and that has obviously the twin sides to it. Not only the, the man's striving to be like God, but also the ability to count others as being less than human. And uh, those two, those are very well tied together. Uh, it might be the central message of our founding and also Judeo-Christian values, the equality of man qua man with man as based in his inequality before God. You had mentioned Michael Novak as one of your school's founders, Mm -hmm. and I remember a wonderful lecture he once gave. It must have been a July 4th lecture of some kind, because he was talking about why why, uh, the city of Philadelphia which really breaks down from the Greek word brotherly love. We call it the city of brotherly Mm -hmm. love. That's what Philadelphia Mm -hmm. actually means from the Greek, brotherly love. 
would be the host city of a document that says all men are created equal because – right? You've heard that lecture. And and it seems to me maybe that is the chief lesson of our founding and Judeo-Christian values. It's the golden it rule. Is. It's equality and yeah, it's it the is. golden rule. But in the, therein lies the tension, right, is that freedom must be allowed, mm-hmm. but understanding that freedom – can be taken advantage of, mm-hmm. and then how do we structure a society in such a way that understands that man is a particular creature? Yes, um, that the founders definitely understood that, um, but it, it, it always demands remembering and thinking through in different ways. And back to uh, Frankel's book, which which Prager as as impacted him, and again another set of books when you hear it, you're like. That's Dennis Prager right there. That is. Um, yep. You know, that understanding is, is so important. To Would you do me a favor, maybe for fun, first time in the yep. history of the world a, uh, a layman is giving a dean homework. How about how about for our next visit you tell me your five books? I look forward to it, Jeff. Pete Peterson, have a great weekend. God bless you, sir. I love our visits. Thank you. You too, Seth. Thanks so much. God bless. Until next week. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Portions of this show are brought to you by our newest sponsor, so delighted to have them, Trades Unlimited. Did you know foam roofs here in the Valley are a great option for many homes? That's where my friends at Trades Unlimited thrive. Not only do foam roofs help insulate from our extreme Arizona heat, but they also help insulate your home from exterior noises, and most importantly, they protect your house from water leaks. I had the privilege to go down to their offices and warehouse at Trades Unlimited and meet the team. I can honestly say I was more than impressed with the people they have working for them and the quality of craftsmanship they stand by. Trades Unlimited was founded in 1994 and is now in its 26th year of serving the Valley. They have an A-plus rating at the BBB, and after getting to know them so well, I can tell you I know why. Most of their business, by the way, is by referral or previous customers, and that always tells me a lot about a company. People are happy and want others to experience their great service as well. That's what you get with Trades Unlimited, quality and service. It's hot here in Phoenix, and we all know that. But what you may want to know is that the hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited at 480 483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. I like those guys, and you will too. Dr. Zudi Jasser coming up. He'll be in studio with us taking your calls. We've had an accumulation of questions and calls and emails about covid And uh, when it all started out, we had Dr. Jasser here every Friday uh, walking and talking us through it. It's been a while, so he'll be back in a few moments if you want to call and have COVID questions for him. Uh, Delighted to take them. I have a few myself. Uh, We're privileged to have Dr. Jasser here in the Valley. Um, Gosh, are we ever, and we're privileged to have him as such a good friend of this show. Bill Bennett highlighted him in his Book of Man. He wrote, Patriotism and love of country were taught to Jasser from his earliest days. His parents stressed pride and civic service, the value of hard work, and the importance of voting. 
Jasser attended the University of Wisconsin, accepted into medical school. He chose to serve in the U.S. Navy as a medical officer. He served on the USS El Paso after serving in Somalia. These were formative days cementing his view of America as a liberating force for good, not a country looking for empire or colonies. I learned about values of Americans on board that ship, said Jasser, who became a lieutenant commander. I learned about diversity and open-mindedness of the nation from the people around me, learning that it is the greatest nation in the history of the world. So the doc is in the house answering your questions on COVID when we come back. 602-508-0960. Happy to take your calls. We will be right back.